0: We're going to be in Mark 11, so if you'll open your Bibles there, uh, and then we get the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper uh, after this, so uh, looking forward to that as well. Let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and just ask Him to, to be here with us and, and help us to, um, to understand what He has for us this morning. We'd say, Heavenly Father, we just thank You, uh, Lord, first of all, we, we, we thank You for who You are. Um, Wow, the creator of everything we see. Uh, the creator of the universe that wa- wants to have a relationship with us. Us fallen fallen sinners that you created to bring glory to you and we turned our backs on you, Lord. But you weren't done with us. You loved us so much that you sent Jesus Christ to come and live the, the perfect sinless life and to die On the cross in our place for the things that we have done, Lord. And we just thank you that there is absolutely nothing that we have done that makes you love us less. Lord, and I just just pray that we would embrace the gift that you have given us through Jesus Christ, that we are your righteousness, and that we would live that way, that we would live with that forefront in our minds that we are purchased with a price, and it was a dear price for Jesus Christ that He was willing to pay so that we could have a relationship with You and that we could have not just life abundantly here, that we could have joy no matter what comes into our lives, but that we get to spend eternity in Your presence. Mm, What an amazing thought. Lord, and I pray if there's anybody here this morning that has not made that decision, I pray that their questions will be answered this morning as you speak to them quietly. I pray that if that they not leave here without asking somebody about any doubts that they have. And for those of us who have made that decision and who live for you, Lord, I pray that we would do that, live for you and not for ourselves. Lord, we pray for our nation We pray for Israel, we pray for the people of Ukraine, and there's so much going on around the world that we can lift up to you. But more than anything else, I pray that that through the lies and through the disasters and through the, the tragedies, that we, your people, would stand on your truth and live for you. Guide us in our study this morning, help us to understand what you have for us and then help us to leave here and live it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, since we had a little bit of time off, I know we weren't in Mark last week, and a lot of people have been on vacation. Welcome back. Uh, I want to recreate your brains for Mark a little bit, okay? So remember the first half of Mark was uh, showing us who is Jesus, and he is the Messiah, right? He is the Son of God. And then the second half of Mark that we're in, right now, is showing what does that mean? What kind of Messiah is he? And Jesus has been teaching them that he's different than they expected. He's different. He's the Son of God, and he's different. And we're now into the Passion Week, which is the week he's crucified, and Jesus is wrapping up his teaching before going to the cross. So that kind of recages us back to Mark. Now that I've done that, I'm going to take you out of Mark, and I'm going to I'm going to get you to imagine with me that we're all Israelites, okay? So I'm making you all honorary Israelites this morning, but unfortunately, I'm also making you slaves, okay? Because we're in Egypt, okay? We're all Israelites. We're in Egypt, and we're in slavery, and we're not very excited about it, and we're crying out to our Lord to save us, and He hears us. And then this guy, Moses, shows up on the scene, and he says, God sent me. to to take you out of Egypt, to deliver you. And and through Moses, as he listens to what God tells him, we see the power of God in a real way, in a way we've never seen it before. We see these ten plagues and and they culminate in us being told to to sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost and on the lintels, And that the angel of death is going to come through and kill all the firstborn, but it's not going to affect us if we will just trust God and put that blood on our house. And it happens. And then Pharaoh lets us go. He wouldn't let us go before, but now he lets us go. And we leave Egypt not as slaves, but we leave Egypt with the wealth of our Egyptian neighbors because they gave it to us as we leave. And we're walking through the desert, and then Pharaoh changes his mind. He starts to come after us. And we're a little bit afraid, but then we see the power of God again. We see the Red Sea split, and we walk through on dry land. We see the Egyptian army that's pursuing us destroyed by the Red Sea when it comes back together. As we walk, we we see God's presence in a very real way because we see the cloud in the day, the pillar of cloud in the day, and we see the pillar of cloud at night. God can't get any more real to us, folks. We're seeing His power daily. We get hungry, and He gives us manna. Every morning it shows up, and we go out and gather it. We get thirsty, and He brings forth water from a rock. Incredible stuff. We're seeing His power. We finally get to Mount Sinai. We've walked a long ways. We get to Mount Sinai, and... And then we see Mount Sinai covered in cloud, fiery cloud with thunder and lightning. And we hear this booming voice of God. And it gives us some commands. And the second command that it gives us says this. You shall not take for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Are you with me? We're Israelites, and we have seen the power of God in a way that none of our ancestors have told us about. We have seen it multiple times in amazing ways. God can't be any more real to us. And after experiencing all this, after seeing the power of God, after hearing his voice, how long is it going to take us to go against his command? Well, as the Bible tells us, about 40 days later, we go to Aaron. And Exodus 32, 1-4 says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this, they said, not Aaron said, but they said, the people said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. They saw all that. We saw all that amazing power. And 40 days later, We're worshiping God because we're saying this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. We're worshiping Him by looking at a golden calf in a way that He expressly forbade us to do it. We think we're worshiping God. He says, you're worshiping an idol. Fast forward some 1,500 years and we're going to resume our study in Mark. Now we're the Israelites, but we're now in in and around Jerusalem, we're experiencing the coming of our long-awaited awaited Messiah. Messiah is here. As a matter of fact, Chris, we went through the triumphal entry a couple of weeks ago. We have just said, "Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." Blessed is he is the king. Sorry, blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David. Hosanna in the highest. We've seen what Jesus did. We've seen His miracles. We've seen Him raise the dead. We've seen Him cure the blind. We've seen Him cure leprosy. We've seen Him do amazing things. Feed 5,000 people with a few loaves and some fish. We've seen the power of God at work. And we've admitted it. And we've said blessing is the coming kingdom of our Father David. Hosanna in the highest. We're hailing Him as the King. How long is that going to last? Not long. Within a week, we're saying crucify Him. We have no King but Caesar. Within a week, crucify Him. We have no King but Caesar. How can this be? How can we go from seeing the power of God in such a real way to completely denying Him and doing our own thing so quickly? Well, the Bible shows us that many times. and the rest of Mark, we're going to see how some of these things happen. And a spoiler alert, it happens the same way it did in Exodus. And you know what? You and I are no different today than we were in Egypt, than we were in Israel when the Messiah came. Our hearts are prone to going to idolatry. Our hearts are prone to having it our way. I've got news for you folks. Coming to church, our lives are not about us. They're about God. Let's look at what He has for us this morning. Mark eleven twelve 12-19. And on the next day, again, that's the day after we have called Him King, on the next day, when they, and that's the disciples, had departed from Bethany, He, being Jesus, became hungry. And, serving, or, and seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, He went to see if perhaps He would find anything on it. And when He came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs. And he answered and said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple, and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he began to teach them And to say, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. And the chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. And whenever evening came, they would go out of the city, they being the disciples and Jesus. So we start here with the cursing of the fig tree, which is a puzzling episode. It's always puzzled me. Maybe I'm alone, but it just seems a little bit out of character for Jesus. Is Jesus just hangry? Does he need a Snickers bar? So he reacts. Is this a parable on the unfruitfulness of Israel? Is it a lesson to the disciples on the power of God? Is it a story that doesn't even belong in the Bible? These are all things that different people have said. And because Mark splits this story, very interesting. Joe's going to talk more about that next week on how he splits the story. We're not going to get the answer today. I'm going to leave that for Joe next week. But we are going to look at a few things, we're going to look at the facts. And then we're going to leave it till next week to get what the facts mean. Because that's how Mark divides it. What do we know? We know it's the day after the triumphal entry. It's the day after we've called him king. We know that Jesus and his disciples are on the way back to Jerusalem from Bethany because they're not staying in Jerusalem at night. Matter of fact, they're probably staying with Lazarus and his family because they live in Bethany. We know that Jesus is hungry and he sees a leafy fig tree in the distance. And we know that Jesus expected that there might be something on the fig tree to eat. Because otherwise, Jesus wouldn't go over there. I did a little study. I'm not a fig farmer. Any fig farmers in here? Anyone? Fig orchards? Okay. I did a little study this week and I found out something interesting. Fig trees are interesting. They're not unlike other trees from the standpoint that they bud out before they leaf but they are unlike it from the standpoint that the the buds that eventually become figs are edible. All right? And as I understand it, the Israelites would eat them, but only if they were really hungry or the destitute would eat as they're going by. Those that are poor would eat because they really liked the figs better and the figs tasted better, so they would want to leave it on the tree. But there was these things that, that you could eat So if you saw a fig tree in leaf, it means it already had these edible buds on it. Okay, so it should have had these edible buds on it. So Jesus wasn't going over there expecting figs when it's not the season of figs. He knew it wasn't the season of figs. And going, I'm cursing you because you don't have figs even though it's not the season of figs. That's what's always puzzled about me. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus is going over there expecting to find something to eat. We know that the tree was unfruitful. It didn't have anything on it to eat. There could be a couple of reasons for this. Maybe somebody came along and ate all the buds. Probably not. Very unlikely that the Israelites would do that because they wanted the figs. So we can assume that it's an unfruitful tree. It is not going to produce fruit this year. Not going to produce fruit this year. We know that Jesus cursed the tree to never be fruitful again. And we know that his disciples were listening. I'm going to say we can assume, because of what we know about Jesus, that he is perfect, he is sinless, he is God incarnate, that he's not just hangry. And we assume that he was not just being capricious. Jesus didn't do things without a plan. Let's assume that he was teaching his disciples something and through them, he's teaching us something. Come back next week to find out what that was. You're welcome, Joe. Come back next week to find out what he was teaching. Clearing of the temple. Man, Jesus is having a rough morning, right? He gets mad at the fig tree and curses it for not being fruitful. And then he goes into the temple and what does he see? Instead of a solemn place of worshiping God, he sees business going on. He sees sacrifices being sold. He sees the money changers. He sees people that are going from one part of Jerusalem to another part of Jerusalem, taking the shortcut, carrying all their stuff through the temple because it was shorter. Instead of walking around the temple, let's just go through the temple. I know it's God's sanctuary, whatever. We'll just go through the temple. That's what he sees. And what's his reaction to it? He drives them out. He wouldn't permit it to happen anymore. Parallel passages, we're not going to look at them this morning, but you can go look to get a little further uh, picture of what's going on, are in Matthew 21, 12-18, and Luke 19, 45-47. Those are the parallel passages to this event. There's one other passage that talks about the clearing, cleaning of the temple, and that's in John 2, 13 through 16. But what we know from studying John in the Scripture is that that's a different event, okay? What we see as we, as we study through John is we see that Jesus, is, his public ministry lasted through three Passovers, basically. The first one is in John. He goes to the temple during Passover, and he sees this going on, and he cleans it out. And the response is people go, oh yeah, we remember that it said, that the Old Testament said that the Messiah will be characterized by zeal for God's temple. Okay, data point. He's zealous for God's temple, but that happened at the beginning of his ministry, the first Passover, uh, first Passover that he was publicly during his public ministry that he was in, that he was in Jerusalem. The second Passover, he didn't go to Jerusalem. Okay, John tells us, John six chapter six tells us that the second Passover was approximately the time of the of the uh, the feeding of the five thousand. Okay, so he was he was off doing other stuff, and this is the third Passover. He's back in Jerusalem, and he sees the exact same thing again. The people were impressed that he had zeal for God's temple, but did it make them change anything? No. They're still doing the same thing. And in this one, he gives us a quote from the Old Testament to tell us, and the quotes from the Old Testament tell us why Jesus is so upset. Remember, Passover is a time when all the Jews from all over the world would convene on Jerusalem. Okay, so Jerusalem would swell tremendously, lots and lots of people. Okay, so pilgrims making long journeys. Jesus drives the money changers, the sellers, the businessmen out. The first thing we see from this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because it's not directly from the text, but it's kind of implied from the text, is that Jesus is claiming authority over the temple. In order to do this, he has to be claiming authority over the temple. Okay? Just like he claimed authority over the Sabbath. He's also claiming an authority higher than the religious leaders and the, and the, and the chief priests because they're okay with this, and he's saying it's not okay. So he's countermanding their instructions. So that's an implicit thing. Now we have the explicit. He says, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? This is a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah 56.7 specifically. And if you look at, you can go look later, if you go look at the context around Isaiah 56.7, what's going on here is God is saying, He's basically talking about all the people that are not Israelites that will come to the temple. Okay, All these people that will acknowledge God and, and, and worship God, be God followers that will come to the temple. So his, he's making a prophecy that his house will be a house of prayer for all the peoples, for all the nations. So that from that, we know that this event happened in the, temp, in, in the court of the Gentiles. We don't want to go too much in, the, in, in detail into the temple, but the outer court was the court of the Gentiles, and then just inside that, Gentiles couldn't go any further. Then you had the court of the women, and then you went into the temple proper, okay? Okay. So the, the Gentiles had to be out here and it was supposed to be a place where they could worship God. That's God's design for it. That's His command for it. The court of the Gentiles is so that God's, the, those who are not God's chosen people, Israelites, but who want to follow God can come and worship God there. A house of prayer for all the nations. And what has Israel turned it into? A marketplace. It's not a place for people to worship, it's a marketplace. And then the second quote from the Old Testament, he says, but you have made it a robber's den. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. You have made it a place of thieves. And not just a place of thieves, but think about it. When thieves go out into the world to do their work, to steal things, they're kind of furtive, they're kind of secretive, they're, they're on guard, they're looking. But when they get back to their den, man, That's home. I could sit back and relax. I feel safe here. I brought all my loot. I feel safe here. So Jesus, is, uh, that, that quote is from Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 7.11 specifically. And the context around that, if you go back and read Jeremiah chapter 7, is that Israel was worshiping God in a wrong way. They were doing abominable things, but they were doing them in the temple So they were saying, it's okay. It'd be like us today saying, well, as long as we do it in the church, as long as I have drag queen story hour in the church, it's okay. That's what Israel was doing. And he was saying, you have made it a robber's den. So what Jesus has just said is, hey, this should be the house of prayer. But you have made it a robber's den. This is how you were supposed to worship. You're not doing it that way. You're not worshiping the way God has commanded you. And He says, I want it out of here. This needs to stop. They were worshiping God just like we did back when we came out of Egypt and made the golden calf. We were worshiping the God who brought us out of Egypt, but we were doing it in the wrong way. So, what we were in effect doing, what we were really doing, was worshiping idols. Israel here, I'm sure it was with great intentions, right? They're like, hey, and I can see it. I could talk myself into this. I could see myself sitting in an elders' meeting going, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's start selling cappuccinos in the foyer. Think about how comfortable that that will make people come in. And we can sell them pretty cheap. You know, you're going to have to pay for a venti. You're going to pay six bucks at Starbucks. We'll, We'll only charge people four. And they won't have to go to Starbucks before they come to church. They can just come here and get it. Think how convenient that would be. Think how comfortable that would make our people feel. Think how much better our worship would be if our people felt comfortable in that way. I can see Israel doing that. They're going, hey... These people are coming from all over the world. Why would we make them bring their sheep for the sacrifice all the way from Greece? You know how hard that is? And then it gets here and the priest looks at it and says it has a defect, and now they brought it all the way from Greece for nothing? Dude, we can make this a way better temple. We'll have the perfect lambs that are already blessed by the priest right here that we can sell people. Isn't that a great idea? We'll make it easy on folks. I can see him doing that. I can see me doing that. If I get away from the word of God. Oh, by the way, when the people come, they have to pay the half shekel temple tax. Oh, dude, the guy came from Rome. He's got what? He's got a denarius. Whose image is on the denarius? Caesar's. He can't pay the temple tax with that. That's idolatrous. Having an image on something is idolatry. I can't have him do that, so I don't want him to have to try to get a, a shekel elsewhere. Let's, let's just have the money changers in the temple. He can come here. As he comes in, he can hand me a denarius. I'll hand him 50 shekels, and he can pay the temple tax, and he can do his business. How easy is that? We're going to be way popular than the, more popular than the other temples if we do it this way. But God says No. That's not the way I've called you to worship me. This is the way I've called you to worship me. Do it my way, not your way. In Egypt, when we came out, it took us 40 days to go, yeah, I don't like the way this is going. I had the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud before, I haven't seen anything for a while. I need an image of God so I can worship Him more effectively. Let's make a calf. That way I can worship Him better because I can see Him. In Jesus' day, they were doing the same thing. Let's do it our way instead of God's way. And that leads directly into our main teaching point this morning, our only teaching point this morning that we see from this passage, but we see it many other places in the Bible, and that is that we must be careful to worship God as He has revealed Himself to be and in a way that He has commanded. We must be careful to worship God as He revealed Himself to be and in a way that He has commanded. In other words, we don't make God into something that we want Him to be. We worship God as He's told us He is. And we worship God in a way He has told us to worship. We don't make the worship of God better by doing things against his commands, we worship him the way he has told us. Again, you see that throughout the Bible. Malachi, I want to go there for just a little bit. You can turn if you want, uh, but you don't have to, but you do have to read it later, okay? That's your homework. It's only four chapters. Fourth chapter is really short, so it's not going to take you very long to read through Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament in our Bibles. So right before Matthew in your Bible, Malachi 1.16, and this is... Uh, just, Malachi is just a list of different ways that Israel thought they were doing good. They, they are worshiping God. They are sacrificing as they think they've been commanded. And God is going through and telling them, you're doing this. And they're like, well, how did we do that? And he tells them. And they say, well, and he says, you're doing this. And they say, well, how are we doing that? And he tells them. So we're going to go through some of those things. Because this is, this is our hearts are this way, folks. We are so easily distracted to do things the way we want instead of the way God wants. We are so easily t- tugged to worship a God that we make as we think God should be, instead of worship the God that is revealed to us in His Word. We're no different than these people. Malachi 1, 6-14, God says, you're despising my name. And They're like, wait a minute, we're worshiping you. We're offering sacrifices to you. How are we despising your name? And He tells them, He says, You're despising your name because you're offering defiled sacrifices. You're offering sacrifices that are not the sacrifices I told you. I told you you bring a one-year-old male without blemish. You're bringing me the blind, the lame, the sick, because that's cheaper for you, and you're you're offering that as a sacrifice to me. He says you wouldn't even give that stuff to your governor. You know, If you went to your governor and wanted to give him a gift, you wouldn't give it to him, but you're sacrificing it to me. In other words, you're sacrificing the leftovers, what's convenient for you, not what I told you to sacrifice. And God is so adamant about it that in in Malachi 1.10, He says, I'd rather you shut the temple doors. And I don't want any of your sacrifices. I'm not going to accept any of your sacrifices. For today, that'd be like God saying, I'd rather you shut the church doors than do what you're doing. In Malachi 2, 13-16, through 16, he says, you're covering the altar with tears and weeping. And they're like, what do you mean? We're just sacrificing. We're not covering the, the, the altar with tears and weeping. They say, how are we doing that? And he says, because you're divorcing. I hate divorce. You're covering the altar with tears and weeping because you are divorcing. In Malachi 2, 17 through 3, 6, he says, you're wearying the Lord with your words. And they're like, how? How are we doing that, God? And he says, because you're having one of two responses to evildoers. You see evil, and you have one of two responses. One of them is you say, God is love, so it's okay. The evil is okay because God loves everybody. Does that sound familiar? In our culture today, you can do whatever you want because God is love. He says, that's one response you're having. And the other response you're having when you see that, is you say, God has no justice. There is no justice. Where is God's justice? Because I see the evildoer getting away with it. He says you're wearying the, the Lord with your words because you have one of those two responses to evil when you see it. Malachi 3, 8-12, he says you're robbing from God. And they say, wait a minute, we're bringing you offerings. We're bringing you, we're bringing you money. Well, how, do we, how are we robbing from you? And he says you're not bringing the full tithe into the temple. You're holding something back. You're robbing from me. You're not worshiping me the way I told you to worship me. And finally, in Malachi 3, 13 through 15, he says, you're you're speaking arrogant words against God. And they say, wait a minute, we're bowing down to you. How are we speaking arrogant words to you? And he says, it's because you're saying it's vain to serve God because I see evildoers flourish. I see people who don't serve God do well, so why should I serve God? I'm serving him in vain. And were they going around saying that to each other? We don't know, but probably not. They're probably thinking it. I'd be lying if I would say there's never been a time in my life where I've thought something similar. Okay? I would be lying if I told you I hadn't thought something similar in my life. Back to Exodus, how did we so quickly depart from God's directive? We put our desires above God's. In Jesus' time, how did they so quickly go from saying, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is He who comes, to saying, crucify Him, we have no king but Caesar. They put their desires above God's. They wanted a specific kind of Messiah, and that's not what God was doing. And they said, If I can't have that Messiah, we're going to kill this one. I don't want him. He's not my way. What's our application for that today? Well, let me ask you how do you choose a church? How do you decide what church to go to? And we've got a lot of people in our church that move around more than a lot of congregations do because we've got military, we've got border patrol that come and go, we've got other government folks that come and go. How do you choose a church? This is important. Do you choose the church based on the music? I love the music. Maybe it's got just the perfect service time for you. I don't want to get up too early So I really don't want an eight o'clock service, you know, but I want to get on with my day. So I don't really want an 11 o'clock service. So a 10 o'clock service would be perfect. That church has a 10 o'clock service. I'm going to go there. Maybe it's the children's programs. And as long as my children are happy, I'll be, I'll be happy. Let's choose it by the, who has the best children's programs or the children's programs I like the most. You know, if you chose your house that way, you'd all be living in a playhouse with swings in the living room and slides from the second floor down. Sounds kind of fun, but not very practical, okay? Not very practical, okay? Maybe it's where your friends go. Maybe it's how close it is to your house. And I want to do that. I want to, church. I want to go to that church that's five minutes from my house. I don't want to drive to the one that's 10 minutes. Or my personal best, the coffee. I'm going where the coffee's good. You know, I visited two, two churches. Church A has good coffee. Church B, they got good coffee too. Church A lets me take it in the sanctuary. I'm going there. That's where I'm going. And again, all the, none of those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves. And if you had all else being equal, okay, I'm going to go to the church that lets me take coffee in the sanctuary. But rarely are all things equal. We shouldn't choose a church based on that because that's our desires. We've got to choose a church based on how it relates to God. How it relates to God. Joe often quotes C.S. Lewis. I'm not going to quote him here in our welcome lens, but I'm going to paraphrase him here. Basically, what you're looking for is sound doctrine. You're looking for somebody who will help you worship the God that is and help you draw closer to the God as he revealed himself to be. I'm going to tell you people, you can find a church that will tell you just about anything you want to do is okay. You can find a church that calls themselves a Christian church that will tell you whatever you want to do, they'll tell you it's okay. You need to go to a church that helps you know God as He revealed Himself to be. You need to go to a church where there is personal and corporate holiness. In other words, the people are trying to follow God's commands. And they're holding each other accountable for following God's commands. That's the kind of church you want to go to. Is the Bible taught in all of its undiluted sternness, as Oswald Chambers would say? Do they skip over the hard parts? Do they only teach the stuff that makes me feel good? If I'm going to church... So I can leave feeling good about myself. I'm going for me, not for God. There's nothing wrong with leaving church feeling good about yourself. But every once in a while, you're going to come to church and you're going to get beat up. And you should. Because the only person that doesn't get beat up in church is God. Okay? Although he gets beat up in a lot of churches. But he's the only one that can't get beat up, really can't get beat up in church. Church should challenge you. The study of the Word should challenge all of us. Are they teaching the Bible as it is? Are they bringing us closer to the God that is, the one as He revealed Himself to be? And is the purpose of the teaching to get us to follow what God says or is the purpose of the teaching to get us feel good, to feel good about what we want to do? Stay away from the church whose purpose is to get you to feel good about what you want to do. We're no different than the Israelites back in the time of Egypt or the Israelites in the time of of Jesus. Our hearts will pull us towards idols if we let them. But we have to be careful, 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 careful not to go that way. Marvin uh, did a great uh, devotional for the uh, the trailmen yesterday, the, the folks that are in trail life yesterday, where he quoted uh, Proverbs 4, uh, 23, and he, talking about uh, being diligent to guard our hearts. Because from it spring the issues of life. And that's what we've got to do. We've got to be diligent to follow God. Back into Mark 18 and 19. 11, 18, and 19. We're going to see three responses. And we've seen these three responses pretty much throughout Mark. But you see them again here. And the chief priest and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy Him. Response number one. I don't like what He's saying What he's saying is threatening my personal empire, my personal life. I don't like him. I want to destroy him. You don't generally see that response in a group of people here. Because if you had that response, you wouldn't be here, right? So we generally don't see that response. But that's one possible response to Jesus. The second response is uh, they were afraid of him for all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. Being astounded at Jesus. Astounded at what he's done. Man, he's done a lot of of cool stuff. It's the Egyptians coming out, uh, uh, or the Israelites coming out of Egypt and being astounded at all they've seen, but do they follow God? No. They go their own way. It's the Israelites in Jesus' time saying, I'm astounded at what Jesus has done, but am I going to follow him? No, because he's not the Messiah that I want. That's the second response. And that can be us in church. And we've got to be careful. That could be me today, and I've got to slap myself out of it or have one of you slap me out of it so that tomorrow I don't do that. And the third response is the response we ought to have, and that's whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. His disciples followed Him. Despite the fact that He did unpopular things They followed him. That's the response we have to have. How do we follow him? Couple techniques, and I'm gonna let Jordan get up here. The key to following Jesus and maturing in our Christian life is aligning our wants to God's wants, okay? We ought never be in the business of trying to change God into our image of what we think he should be, okay? We ought to be, again, we have to be careful to worship God as he revealed himself to be and in a way he commands. So you've heard it at this church over and over again. Number one, you've got to be in the word individually. Read through the Bible every year. It really doesn't take that long every day. 20 minutes a day. Think of the stuff that you do 20 minutes a day. Be in the Word individually and submit to its instruction. And then we need to study the Word like we're doing now corporately, but not just here. Preferably in a group somewhere. Sometime during the week. This is great, but it'd be great to do it other. And why do we need to study the Word corporately? Because by myself, I can read Scripture and get some really weird ideas and start going off track. I need you people... I need the body of Christ to tell me, dude, I don't think that's what it means. I think that's what it means. And then we talk back and forth about it and we go, oh, okay, yeah, to keep us on track. So we need to study the word corporately. We need to pray earnestly and often. Dare I say, without ceasing. Okay? We need to pray earnestly and often. And when we pray to God, we're not telling Him anything He doesn't know. But when we pray, what we do is we get ourselves, we're not praying to get God on board with us. We pray so that God can inform us. We pour out our hearts to Him. He speaks to us through His Word and it aligns our thoughts with His thoughts. And then we need to serve one another in love. And this is the hard thing. Guess what? Serving one another in love doesn't mean letting letting each other do anything we want to do. It means holding each other accountable to what God has told us to do. That's what it means. And that's pretty easy when I'm the person holding somebody else accountable. Dude, I can tell my wife what to do all day long, no problem. That's easy. But man, if she tells me, whoo, do I get defensive? I go, wait a minute. And we've got to be the type of people that can take that admonishment uh, and take it to heart. You see, God is never changing. He hasn't changed. He wasn't any different in Exodus than he is today. He wasn't any different in Mark than he is today. But we have to be diligent. We have to be vigilant to make sure our hearts don't drift away from him and try to make him into something he's not. We have to be careful to worship God as he revealed himself to be and in the way he commands. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Uh, thank you for the way you recage us, Lord. I thank you for the uh, all the indications that you give us uh, of how our spiritual lives are going, whether it's uh, as we read the epistles and, and we read through Galatians and see whether we're acting in the, in the, in the, the deeds of the flesh or the fruit of the Spirit, uh, or, or Lord, whether we're reading through uh, the Gospels and, and seeing uh, the different reactions to Jesus and, and, and seeing how, how we're reacting to you. But Lord, I just I just thank you uh, for the way you challenge us. I thank you for the, the body that you put us in here. I pray that, that we would help each other uh, and, and help this church continue uh, to worship you as you are and, and to worship you in a way that you've commanded us to do and that we would not uh, get off track there, Lord. Uh, I pray that each one of us uh, would in our hearts uh, each and every day desire to serve you. And we know that that's not a, re- a natural response, that we need your Holy Spirit uh, to help us do that, and we cry out, Lord, uh, that you help us to submit to your spirit, and that you help us uh, in our lives to do the things that you've called us to do, be they hard, uh, be they difficult, be they complicated, or be they simple, and be, and Lord, we, we just want to be those who can rejoice with those who can rejoice that when my brother, something good's happened to my brother or my sister, I can rejoice in that, Lord, we want to be that type of person, And we want to be the type of person that can can come along and cry uh, with somebody who's having a difficult time and be an encouragement. Lord, help us to live in your body as you designed us to live in your body. Together in love, worshiping you. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, I pray. Amen.